loss helps us define our lives. By allowing grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. Get ready to be inspired, create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here's Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Jen Soriano. Jen's a Filipino... Filipinex writer and movement builder who has long worked at the intersection of grassroots organizing, narrative strategy, and art-driven social change. Jen's won the International Literary Award for Creative Nonfiction, the Fugue Prose Prize, and fellowships from Hugo House, Vermont Studio Center, Artist Trust, and the Jack Jones Literary Art Retreat. Jen's an independent scholar and performer, author of the chapbook, Making the Tun Dry, and co-editor of Closer to Liberation, activist anthology. She received a BA in history and science from Harvard and an MFA in fiction and nonfiction from the Rainier Writing Workshop. She's co-founder of the Cultural Democracy Institution's Media Justice and Reframe. Originally from a landlocked part of the Chicago area, Jen now lives with her family in Seattle, near the Duwamish River and the Salish Sea. Nervous, Essays on Heritage and Healing is her debut book. Welcome, Jen. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy to have you, and I've been I've been telling people in my regular everyday life how much I've appreciated your book and how the connections you make between the personal and the political and the historical, all the connections you make just touch me so deeply. So thank you for the book. I'm so glad to hear it. I, I you know, wrote it for people like you who, uh, you know, hunger for um, connections that unfortunately, in our daily lives, I think, get um, obscured. <laughs> Lots yeah. of compartmentalization and fragmentation <laughs> of things that actually are naturally interconnected. So I tried to, to expose some of that in the book. Absolutely. And I was, I was saying to you before we went on that being a second wave feminist as I am, uh, having lived through that time where we talked so much about the personal is political, um, and, you know, amazing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I want to start first talking about the personal, but but the wonder of you is over time how you made connections between your own personal story and, uh, your community, your family, your community, your um, your original place, uh, and back into ancestral times. I think that's really, really powerful. But you started with a personal experience of of pain. Yeah, uh, you shared about that very raw, rawly, uh, very in a very real way. And I wondered if you could share some with the listeners just about. Um, it, it, it being so personal to start out with, and then how you began to see the connections that it might be more than just yours. So I uh, opened the essay collection with this essay that you're talking about, which is called A Brief History of Her Pain. And um, it is called Her Pain Versus My Pain because it, it does connect my pain to centuries um, of of 
uh, chronic pain and misdiagnosis experienced primarily by women and uh, non-gender conforming people. But yeah, I mean, I was talking with somebody the other day about um, pain as a collaborator. <laughs> and um, it's true that pain has been almost a muse for me uh, in that, you know, when I would lay out, up at night, not able to sleep because of pain, it was almost like pain was telling me, hey, you got to get up and do something, do something. And, you know, uh, there wasn't really uh, good treatments at the time. Um, it's really only been in the past, say, five to 10 years, I think that chronic pain has uh, really become treated as its own condition and that um, the Western medical system has recognized that pain relief is important, <laughs> even when you can't necessarily diagnose the cause of the pain. But at the time, um, that I wrote this essay, uh, there was no, you know, quote unquote cure or solution that really worked. And so the only thing that I could do to get through the night was get up and do something else. <laughs> and that was right. And so, um, the essay, the opening essay to the book includes some things that I lifted wholesale from journal entries that I would write in the middle of the night. And so I think that, probably contributes to some of what people will call like kind of a raw feeling to, to that uh, first essay. And, um, you know, I, I really wanted to be able to um, not just share my own pain, but also kind of help give voice to something that's invisible for a lot of people. You know, there's millions of people in the U.S. alone who suffer from chronic pain. And it's not something that is um, easy to, to describe, <laughs> uh, much less something that you can see. And so I really wanted to, um, in some unfiltered ways, share the words that would come out in some of the worst pain moments. And also in, during those nights when I would, would write, I would have pretty embodied experiences of this pain not just being my own. And that's what led to the chronology that's in that first essay that essentially connects, uh, you know, these um, somewhat comical, honestly, experiences that I would have with doctors um, who would dismiss my pain uh, with much less comical instances in history of um, women being persecuted for uh, mysterious illness, such as during the witch hunts, you know, some of the, many of the people who were, uh, who were, who were persecuted as witches were people who are chronically ill. And so, um, you know, writing that essay was a way for me to express both express my frustration about not being able to receive proper treatment uh, through conventional medicine and also um, to make the connections as we had started talking about uh, around how in my case, it was definitely not an, unfortunately an isolated uh, case. And that, uh, you know, eventually what the whole book really argues is that our systems need to change if we want to alleviate and mitigate and prevent pain. Going back to the beginning of what you said there, um, some of the Buddhist teachers I, I've encountered uh, say um, the hindrance is the doorway. <laughs> that seems, mm. 
affiliated with what you're saying that there's there's some way that attending to ourselves opens doors into different ways of looking at things but then i'm also aware that because of this judgment against women in particular but anyone who has a problem uh, it, it applies to grief and all kinds of of different challenges um it's an automatic invitation towards shame it's it's like it's our fault that uh, you know not only do we have these painful things happening but then we're supposed to take it on like we're doing something wrong and I, I appreciated the way you talked about that too that that's something you had to walk past and say no this is just my pain and I'm trying to get help <laughs> you know? yeah and that has been one of the most freeing things I think about the 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 delayed but <laughs> finally upon us kind of evolution of the treatment of pain at least in some parts of this country where uh, it's now seen as um, a physiological condition that is not just invented in one's head um, and you know and um, for better or for worse for me, when when I was able to really understand sort of the physiological changes in my nervous system that had uh, led to this type of chronic pain, it was very freeing. It um, it it made me understand that uh, you know it, those messages that um, I was too weak, or you know, I had doctors specifically say to me like, "You just overthink it," or you know, like you're too in your body, you somaticize too much. That um, that that those were um really harmful and 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 not accurate actually very not accurate statements um that were definitely not helping me heal and um you know on the larger tip on the sort of personal as political tip as we had been talking about uh you know that also helped me realize and I am hoping it helps readers feel the same thing that um that you know this the self-blame that we internalize, it comes from somewhere. It is also not our fault. Like it's not just because we have these negative patterns of thinking that come from nowhere. No, it actually comes from the system of uh, a Western medicine that is set up for individualized uh, uh, blame and disease. Honestly, right? You're not exercising enough. You're not, you know, you're your bad habits. You're 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 thinking. You're you're you're. It's all in your head. You're too weak. These are all thoughts that don't just come from inside our own heads. They actually come from a system that it, that needs to that needs to evolve and change. And probably a system. I think you'd agree with this that that um, wants us to stay quiet and produce. Uh, mm -hmm. That's right. Suck it up. Anyway, stay productive. <laughs> you know, the goal of the system, I guess we will say. Um, but what I particularly appreciate about your book is how deeply you investigate. Uh, you know, I, I live in the therapy world. We talk about trauma a lot. Um, but I'm but I'm always aware of context with my clients because psychology can be very um, individualistic. Um, but we live in a context, don't we? And uh, one one quote from your book that I that that moved me you said, um, back in 2001, I'd never heard anyone speak of individual trauma 
much less collective trauma, historical trauma or colonial trauma, not in my family, not in my schools, not even within the Filipino activist community. Back then, I would not have been able to tell you what I know now, that what brought me to the edge of a cliff was pain from unbridled anxiety and depression, but also from unresolved psychological trauma. It took 40 years to understand that the traumas I'd experienced were multi-layered, stemming from birth through the present, extending back even further beyond. I had suspected, but not accepted, but I also carried historical trauma from generations past. Um, that moves me because I've experienced that in a very different context, kind of feeling the pain of all the generations that ended up here. Mm. And, and that 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 those I remember once I heard um, you brought up the the um, terrible oppression of of people who were thought to be witches. And once I heard that a way they tortured women in that time was to um, put mice on them who would gnaw at them. Oh God! And they horrible the person that was speaking was explaining how come women are afraid of mice. That that's kind of built into our DNA almost. Whoa. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. Uh, it, it's, I heard it probably a couple decades ago, two or three decades ago, but it's that same thing that we, we are built by our ancestry, aren't mm -hmm. we? And until mm -hmm. you recognize, you make such a beautiful case for recognizing all of that because that's how we move forward isn't it i think so and uh that's one of the main types of connection that i explore and reclaim in the book is ancestral connection and uh you know i i think um i'm gonna go as far as to say i bet almost every culture on the planet has a tradition of uh, of being connected to ancestors in some way or another. And in our modern um, Western, or I'll at least say in the United States, American society, um, those kinds of connections have been severed, have been drastically severed. And, uh, and the truth is that uh, neuroscience and other forms of science are showing these biological mechanisms to ancestry that uh, people in the spiritual realm have have long, you know, have not long known about, right? Um, and speaking of grief, right, unresolved grief actually has arguably a biological mechanism to it. And um, and to me, learning about that helped both explain the scope and scale of the pain that I felt and um, made me realize that some of the pain that I was carrying was probably unresolved grief and pain from my ancestors. Uh, but then it also helped me realize that there is this very deep connection to not just pain and grief, but also to strength and uh, uh, important life lessons of survival and also joy. And, you know, the example that you shared of, you know, possibly, you know, the, this ancestral learning about mice and, and, and being afraid of mice is um, an example of the type of um, threat 
uh, response learning that that I talk about in my book, which you know can be a core uh, essence of, of of inherited trauma. That you know you have a sensitized, you inherit sort of a sensi- sensitized um, stress response system. Uh, but also the flip side of that is that um, those can be ancestral lessons of how to survive <laughs> and how to, um, you know, avoid things that don't serve us so that we can move towards things that actually will help us thrive. And that type of ancestral connection is um, is is what I what I most wanted to bring forward in in sort of the, our potential for healing. I, I certainly think you accomplished that beautifully. Um, mm. About a teacher of mine who uh, invites his workshops to to feel, you know, to open up to emotions by saying, um, "Our tears are food for the ancestors, and if we don't cry, they are starving." <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Oh, uh, that got me. Just has a feeling of truth, doesn't it? It does. It really does. Um, that somehow there's this connection between between us staying real and and healing in some other realm. I, I think it's a beautiful, however you interpret it, you know, literally or in other ways, it's it really feeds me to think of it that way. That mm. there's a there's a need that our generations have to actually allow all these things to come to our awareness, you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think we are in that era. We're in, we're in a healing era um, where we're hopefully getting to, to heal the past seven generations, at least, as they say, in Native American communities, um, and being able to address some of the grief that, that our ancestors were not able to address. And to to give give ourselves mercy that it's hard to do also, you know, mm-hmm. there's, I, I being in an older time of my life, I keep learning, you know, we all keep learning and doing better and better. I certainly do hope when we're trying, huh? Let's mm-hmm. take and come back to that. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Jen Soriano, you can go to jensoriano.net. Be back soon. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, Please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to goodgriefwithcheryl at gmail.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I've been talking with Jen Soriano about her book, Nervous. Jen, you really go into a lot of detail about your own process. I really appreciated that in with the backdrop of everything you learned about the interconnections. Um, and I was particularly, of course, drawn to um, what I would consider more directly grief-related aspects of what you're talking about. It's all grief-related, but- It is, isn't it? <laughs> all of it, because- um, if if loss if grief is the difference between what we want to be true and what's true, that's <laughs> everything you talk about qualifies. But um, I was very moved by your relationship with BJ. Oh, how you talk about BJ because uh, you said about him, um, we share you and I shared a nervous connection, our autonomic nervous systems and trained to each other, the neural equivalent of being on the same wavelength. And uh, the person who brought me to this work I do was my first wife. And we had that kind of connection. Mm, beautiful. During times we were together and times we were not together, you know, um, as partners, we always had that connection. So I, I so deeply knew what you were talking about. Can you share something about BJ and, and what happened in you as a result of that relationship, where that brought you? Um, yes, thank you for asking. So for listeners who haven't read the book, there's an essay in the book called Unconditional that is about my friend BJ. And um, BJ is um, someone with whom I immediately felt safe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, interestingly enough, this was a very intimate but um, platonic relationship. He was like a brother to me. And um, people assumed that we were a romantic couple because we spent all our time together. We lived together. <laughs> we were in a band together. We did everything together. So we were in, we were in a partnership of sorts, <laughs> but it was a platonic partnership. And, 
pretty much from the moment that I met him, which was, you know, for folks who are listening who might be familiar with the Bay Area, which is where I met him. We met at the Victoria Theater in San Francisco. And uh, that night that we met, I describe it in the opening of the essay, we just hit it off like we um, had been born from the same womb and knew each other (laughs) from birth. And, uh, you know, I wrote about this relationship because to me, he was exactly what the psychiatrist Judith Herman writes about in her book, Trauma and Recovery, when she writes about him. Uh, a model for recovering from trauma. And one of the parts of the model is reestablishing or establishing um, for the first time a sense of safety with even just one other person. Mm. And um, I just had never really had a sense of safety before. I grew up with very insecure attachment to caregivers um, and um, was just, you know, part of the traumatic inheritance in my family was to feel like danger and war and disaster were around the corner at every given moment and that you couldn't trust anybody. And uh, BJ was a person who taught me, well, here's one person that you can trust. And, uh, and a lot of that came through um, just enjoying life. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a very sibling type relationship in that we um, made fun of each other a lot. We cracked jokes about inappropriate things. We, you know, just really bonded over uh, getting to let out the parts of us that wanted to take the world a little less seriously, even if the world, you know, and this was also part of our bond, the world actually um, rested on our both our shoulders in pretty heavy ways. Uh, but, uh, you know, we found ways together to, um, move through the kind of undercurrents of trauma that we both carried. And a lot of that came through not just our own interpersonal reactions, but through being part of a larger Filipino activist community and through sharing music together. We were in a band, then we, we, we wrote songs together and sang together. And, uh, and, you know, to this day, um, I still think of him as one of my best friends, even though he is no longer on this earth. I know that feeling as well, mm. <laughs> for sure, for mm-hmm. sure. And and just um, to the side, uh, I would say music is my primary healing mode. Oh wow! So when have you that in common, yeah, I I don't write in deep grief. I I sing. <laughs> I just don't even want to do the word thing. <laughs> but um, the singing but, is even more primal. Yes, yeah, and more. Um, uh, it moves things through your body in a way that I was very trained to be mental as a child. So mm-hmm. there's something about singing that just moves things through differently. Plus, Absolutely. you <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Is that a way you've thought about it as well? Absolutely. And I write about it in the book as, uh, you know, from both the more kind of traditionalist, kind of spiritualist perspective and the fact that, you know, there's a reason that chanting and singing is one of the most ancient modes of communication uh, because, uh, you know, it feels good (laughs) because it taps into, uh, moves things through, as you said, but also taps into other planes. Uh, But 
I also write about the 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 neuroscience of 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 singing and um, in particular the breath that comes with singing. So um, although I don't um, uh, you know uh, uh, centralize this in the book, there are a lot of undercurrents of what's called the polyvagal theory, and that's a theory that was created by uh, uh, Stephen Porges. And um, it has been very useful in trauma therapy. And one of the tenets of the polyvagal theory is that the vagus nerve, which is actually a system of nerves, it's our longest nerve that runs, a cranial nerve that runs through our body and it enervates all of our organs. It also, um, it also governs um, our heart rate and our, um, our ability to switch in between states, nervous system states of rest and calm and nervous system states of agitation. Mm. And long breaths, long exhales um, are one of the main ways that are the part of the vagal system that actually activates the rest and the peace side mm. of that system gets activated. And so Stephen Porges is a clarinetist. And so playing the clarinet and wind instruments is one of the ways that he's, you know, found that, you know, that type of movement through moving through grief, pain actually can happen by playing the clarinet. Well, it's similar with singing. When you exhale and you are you are producing, you know, this 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 flow of oxygen that's coming out of your body, it actually almost acts like a lever that then can shift your body into the state of like, ah. You know, I am literally moving through different states into a state that is more restful and peaceful. I'm also thinking, and I wonder what you what you might say about this, that, um, you know, the, the music center of the brain, uh, when you're learning music, it's the only part of the brain that all the others light up for. And if we're talking about uh, new learning. You you talk about new pathways and um, neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. It makes some sense to me intuitively that music is better at doing that than some other things. Mm. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of can fire your whole whole brain in a way that um, mental learning doesn't do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah, well, and Oliver Sacks has written a lot about that. You know, he wrote a whole book called Musicophilia and and writes about how, you know, when he was in certain states of impairment, that music, you know, was 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 what helped him get through and 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 likely because of, you know, some of what you're saying. And I know Gabby Giffords, who was shot in the head, the first way that she was able to communicate was through music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can mm -hmm. you can build things back up. I mean, yeah, it's fascinating. About music, but it's got <laughs> a lot, just the power of it, too. Well, absolutely. And I mean, if you look at, you know, I mean, I don't talk about this in the book, but, you know, I, I think it's very related, right? Just the, the power of mourning through song, right? Since we're talking about grief. And I, again, it's, you know, part of that sort of instinctive way, I think, that we, that, that our bodies kind of guide us towards healing, you know, mm -hmm. that it shows that uh, once again, probably in every culture in the world, I'm sure that there's some sort of tradition of mourning through, through music and through song. Absolutely. And then I wonder, after he died, since your connection was so music uh, adjacent, you know, that was so much a part of it, how did music play into your own grief at that period? That's a great question. You know, 
after he died, so he died pretty suddenly. Uh, and, uh, and in, in the hospital, I had the chance to see him when most of the community had not seen him. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, um, I, you know, had a moment in the hospital of just that kind of complete collapse of like despair when you realize that this person who had once been in an animated body is now no longer moving. But then the next day when people gathered together in, uh, you know, a community gathering, I think for a lot of folks, it was not real. Um, It was not real to them. They had not seen him in the hospital. Meanwhile, I had been asleep for the past 24 hours and kind of was just a zombie, but I wasn't really feeling anything anymore. And um, I remember a really specific moment during that gathering. It was at his sister's house when somebody put on a video of him singing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the moment once I heard his voice that think I think the grief hit me uh full on uh, that was when I realized he was gone that I wasn't going to ever get to hear him sing live and in person mm. again mm. and so there was that moment the music made me realize what I had lost and um then you know there was also moments of collective grieving through song just like we had been talking about uh you know he had he was he was a very popular person he had i think three four five different memorials in different parts of the <laughs> bay area all the way to sacramento you know down to san jose and uh there was music at every single memorial and that was part of the healing process we threw him a karaoke party and that was also part of the healing process and so music definitely um was a medium for for the community to memorialize and collectively grieve. But I will say that one of the things that really sticks with me um, in terms of grief is that I have never and probably will never again um, been able or be able to sing with somebody in the way that I sang with BJ. The way that we were able to harmonize together um, at the drop of a hat and invent harmonies out of nothing. Uh, and the way that our voices would blend together is something that I never have had or probably with anyone else and probably never will. Those things that are particular to a given person, you've got me thinking about things with my first wife that there, there's no, there's no way to have it again, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was something about her and I, and this was something about you and BJ. Um, other things are wonderful, marvelous, incredible, but they're never that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're different. <laughs> I, I feel like that's what grief is about, coming to terms with that. Uh, you sound like someone who continues to feel a connection mm-hmm. with BJ, a deep connection. I could say the same, but we've lost that, mm-hmm. that, that mutual body experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I choose to keep that connection alive too. You know, my, uh, one of my greatest gifts that I, I received from BJ, I would say is a relationship with his sister. And I write about that in the book. And, uh, 
And his sister is, uh, you know, my connection with his sister, I would say, is, is, is almost as deep as my connection with BJ. I think that we really are, we're siblings in another, in another life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I really treasure the fact that I can remember him uh, with her in, in, in such, um, I think, um, familial <laughs> type ways. Yeah. I'm also just so aware of him. You you say, uh, can am I going to be able to find this? Uh, probably not. You say something about how um, uh, part of self-esteem is capability and the other part is being lovable. Mm-hmm, do mm-hmm. I have it That's right? Something, yeah, uh, you do. That's something I learned from my first therapist. Yeah. And, uh-huh. and he exemplifies coming to a sense of lovability. Mm-hmm. That's what I that that's what I took that to mean. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was projecting. It's possible. No, no, no but, that's exactly uh, what I what I meant by writing it, that. Mm-hmm. Once you really find yourself lovable, it's harder to convince yourself that you are unlovable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right, and it's why you know primary attachments at at young ages are so important. Because, you know, if you're given that base when you're a child of feeling lovable, then, you know, all the hard knocks that come later in life, you have a buffer against. But for folks who weren't given that, um, like myself, it's even that much more amazing when you are able to find it uh, later in life. And that's what I was able to find through BJ. That that, that really was the biggest gift. (laughs) And you were talking earlier about um, the disconnected world in which we live. I, I feel like even uh, families that are not highly traumatic, I would say my my family life growing up was not highly traumatic, but it's it still was disconnected. Mm. Um, it took me a long time to realize everything should be fine, but it wasn't because of that sense of disconnection. So even in that, I had to learn that I was lovable. I, I didn't feel it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> right? mm-hmm. So just to say there's there's deep trauma, which is a whole different thing, but there's also just the disconnection that we're all experiencing unless we do something to repair it. That's and right. When we come back, I, I really want to talk about um, your coming into parenthood, which to me pushed you to face a lot of, of, uh, as it did for me when I, when I had kids, a lot of hurt places mm-hmm. and way to put it, try to heal them to, to be able to do it, to be able to love a child. So let's come back and talk about that in a few minutes. Sounds good. Listeners, you can go find both of us by, uh, for me, you can go to goodgriefwithcheryl.com or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Jen Soriano, you can go to jensoriano.net. Be back after the break. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief Host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, 
follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, Please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to goodgriefwithcheryl at gmail.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Jen Soriano about her book, Nervous. And before the break, I, I said I really wanted to talk about your evolution towards mothering or parenting, mm-hmm. um, because that's another space in which you talked in such a raw and honest way about the the push and pull of it and the difficulties of actually getting to the place where you wanted to do that. And of course, I've experienced that as a therapist where people don't want to ever parent and then they they evolve and then they do, and it's it's not an easy progression in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you you taught me something, oh, yeah. and I'll push it over to you. I had never heard the word um, toxa. Maybe you can quote tocophobia. it. Tocophobia. Mm-hmm. And um, I put it in my search bar, and. Uh, press the button and the same thing happened to me that happened to you they autocorrected to homophobia which mm-hmm. I is ironic and hysterical <laughs> right <laughs> very <laughs> ironic <laughs> mm-hmm. but can you can you share some about uh it, it felt so beautiful that you that you got to the place to bring a child into your life and all the care you took mm. to yourself in that and all the care your partner took to support you in that. Um, Can you share some about that? Absolutely. I would love to. This is actually a topic in the book that I wish I 
got to talk about more for whatever reason it doesn't come up as much as some of the other topics uh but it is very near and dear to my heart and i want to start by saying that um you know, one of the reasons that I chose to write about this is because, uh, you know, I know that there's so much more complications to the experience of um, considering parenting to then actually um, uh, uh, becoming a uh, uh genetic parent of some kind, um, you know, the physiological, the, the, the psychological, the economic <laughs> uh, uh, challenges that are often involved in, in, in the process are just something th that we just talk very little about in our society. And to me, it's, it, that's, that's kind of wrong <laughs> just to be wrong and uh and 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 so you know i i wanted to bring some of the hush hush conversations that you know sometimes don't even happen behind closed doors and just don't happen at all but if they happen at all it's usually behind closed doors more into into the public debate i think we should all be talking about this more because then obviously our medical system might also shift to take um, the complications of, um, of, of, of birthing and, and pregnancy more seriously, particularly for BIPOC people um, and LGBTQIA plus people. Uh, so that is why I chose to share what is probably some of the most personal and vulnerable information um, in the book. Um, and, um, you know, I, uh, I also wanted to say that, um, and I acknowledge this in the book, that although I do feel very proud of, of the, the, the process that I went through to get help with, um, I was having pretty extreme psychological issues with um, even the thought of uh, carrying, carrying a child, um, I feel very proud of, of the process I went through and what I was able to overcome and absolutely adore my little one. <laughs> I also 100% respect and could still see, you know, this, this different path um, that people, some people choose to take of, of, of being child-free and, and, and choosing not to be a parent. And there's lots of reasons to not do that, but there are um, many people who choose to be child-free specifically because they do not want to carry on more trauma. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and I support that a hundred percent as well. Um, but for me, I, um, you know, I, I, I met my partner and, um, went onto a healing path that didn't have anything to do with having a kid, but it brought me to a place where I could actually consider trying to, to do that, even though I had, had such intense chronic pain, um, and, you know, it turned out that I was not able to um, have a child without fertility assistance, um, even though I'm in a, a, you know, a relationship with a cis man. Um, but I, um, you know, then went through this process of IVF that, 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 that honestly, I think, um, really aligned with kind of because of how deliberate you have to be with IVF, right? You got to go in every day for shots and, you know, monitor your levels and things like that. It, it aligned with this very deliberate psychological um, healing process that I had to go through as well. And so, you know, just to give um, folks who haven't read the book a little bit of a taste of what I describe, um, 
you know, I had some pretty significant delusions around birth that were very violent. Um, and that had to do with feeling that if I was carrying a child and, you know, you could see my baby bump, that it was going to make me vulnerable to being hunted and attacked and, uh, and potentially slaughtered honestly, is the feeling that I was having. And so then I go through this kind of investigation, mystery solving process around what is happening around this and got support from friends and also professional support. But it was actually not until researching the book um, after I had already had my child that I learned about the term tocophobia. And uh, when I learned about it, I was like, okay, why is there not more research on this? Because it's essentially about a pathological fear of pregnancy and birth, which is what I was experiencing. And I think we all can suspect why, have theories why this is not more well known. I mean, can you think of anything more, you know, antithetical to the current system that we have, the patriarchy that we have, like research on like women being so afraid of pregnancy that they would, you know, do anything possible to avoid reproducing. Like, who's going to fund those studies? You know, it's not in the interest of what we were talking about before production. So, um, you know, when I found the study, it, it's, it's, a, it's a study from researchers uh, who appear by their names to be, to be women, um, from India. Um, I felt extremely validated. What relief. What yes. relief. <laughs> oh, it has a name and other people experience it. And, you know, diagnosis, quote unquote, has a real downside, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But to the degree that it helps you normalize yourself to yourself, I'm all for it. Like Exactly. Right? Oh, yeah. there's reasons for this. And then, of course, you... Uh, amplify the reasons so beautifully into the history of your people, the history of your family, you know. Um, but it was interesting to read from another angle, which is that I came out at 17. Mm -hmm. At 27, I had a child. And it was almost the opposite that I had to only want to have a child to even make it happen. And I realized reading that that um, all whatever doubts and discomforts and and strange internal conflicts I had, I because of the context in 1980, <laughs> I pretty much had to put them entirely aside, mm, even though they were even though they were totally normal, you mm. know, totally mm. normal. It's very weird to have another human inside of you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that is not some kind of simple experience right 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 right, right. It's pretty right. complex <laughs> yeah it's not just you know like yeah. drinking your coffee in the morning and like it's just yeah it's pretty well, complex what coffee do you I, I didn't drink coffee in the morning during that period that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just it's not really it, i mean as much as you know and i get sort of the natural birth movements kind of approach to being like well it's beautiful it's simple like you don't need that much medical intervention it's like it can be Mm -hmm. But it's not that way for everybody. <laughs> no, and it's still, it's kind of like having an easy baby or a hard baby. They're all babies. They're mm -hmm. all difficult, <laughs> you know, 
in their ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not easy to raise a child. So I just appreciated the 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 le- the depth you went into about your own experience with that. And of course, in the context of the world we're in now, where I was thinking of all the women who can't choose to just have one child That's or right. children, and what that does to a person's psychology. Mm-hmm. They they may move forward, they may even love the child, but the disempowerment in that really um, breaks my heart. Oh, uh, the, the the amount of a uh, of a uh, of trauma that uh, these um, anti choice laws uh, are creating is is um, is extremely painful. Um, to think about. And, you know, on the tip of transgenerational trauma, mm-hmm. any, you know, any child that is born in, in that kind of circumstance where the parent doesn't have full agency, they're going to feel the effects of that at an epigenetic level in ways that will manifest in, in, in lots of, in lot in, across a whole spectrum of ways and anything from, from mental health issues to, to blood pressure and metabolism issues. Yeah. So, yeah, so those types of anti-choice laws are an, a perfect example of the opposite of trauma-wise policy. Uh, um, yes, and I, I haven't mentioned as of yet, and we're getting near near the end of our hour, this idea of a trauma-informed future. This, this just delights my heart so much to imagine that we're moving towards a recognition of people's insides and what's traumatized them and what's been traumatized in their generations. There are lots of traumatized people currently being created. Mm-hmm. That's how I think of it in this world. There's so much violence and and so much, uh, such a lack of empathy yeah. going on. That's why. That's yeah, why there's there's such an urgent need to 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 reshape our systems towards addressing the long term impacts of trauma. Um, and and we can do it. it we can do it. it 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 actually can change uh in in a generation if we just have the will and the awareness um and you know then we can have a baseline of 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 people who have um the support and uh, and community support necessary to be able to continue to reshape our world toward beyond survival and toward sustainability especially in the face of of climate crisis you you talk uh, very deeply in the book. Um, if we had another hour, we'd go go further into this. But you talk very deeply about how to be activists in in um, and and include uh, quote unquote subtle negotiations we need to be in compassionate conflict with one another. Um, and it made me think uh, as I was reading. I really appreciate it because. Uh, we have to take all this that you and I are talking about into our communities so that we actually are the world we're trying to make. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I appreciate your voice and going in that in that direction. May we all have our own ways to to go in that direction. And I really appreciate you being here today. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I really enjoyed it as well. Glad. Glad you did. You to, one more time, to find Jen Soriano, you can go to jensoriano.net. Next week, I'll have Darnell Lamont Walker. Darnell's a children's television writer and a death doula.
we'll be talking about how these two seemingly separate parts of his work intersect. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.